My guest today is David Barnett. David's been working with small businesses for over 20 years, helping to buy and sell them for the last 10, both as a business broker and as a consultant. He helps businesses figure out the world of business transactions and helps guide people to making the best and most economical decisions, whether buying or selling a business. Now, this is a great episode for you if you've ever wondered about buying a small business, whether to change careers and have a lifestyle business doing something you love, or maybe you've thought about retiring early from your corporate gig to buy a business that is low maintenance and provides you with sufficient income. And is that even a reasonable goal? Well, that's what David's for. In the interview, we'll get into why and how David became an expert in buying and selling Main Street businesses. We'll talk about aligning your business idea and venture to your interests. We'll talk about red flags when buying a business. We'll talk about how seller financing can help foster a successful transition. We'll talk about the fragile nature of businesses. We'll talk about the notion of an absent owner business and why that might not be such a great thing. And we'll talk about a whole lot more. Please visit investsmarterpod.com slash 52 for the show notes and to follow David on his terrific YouTube channel. All opinions expressed on this show are the opinions of myself or any guest and do not reflect the opinions of DeWitt Capital Management. All information is for educational and informational purposes and should not be relied upon for investment decision making. With that out of the way, let's get straight into this interview. I hope you enjoy it. David Barnett, it's great to have you here on the Invest Smarter podcast. I'm really excited to uh, have you on and sort of share some knowledge to the audience about all things buying and selling business. Um, I guess the first thing that um, I would want to know, maybe the audience would want to know, is how did you come to be an expert in buying and selling uh, small businesses? Well, hey, well, thanks, Dave, for having me on the show. Um, I'd love to get into that. It's, you know, I'm one of those people and maybe maybe we have this in common. I've always been interested in business and money and everything, even from the time I was I was a young guy, a kid, you know. And I had all those childhood businesses like mowing people's lawns and I'm from Canada. So shoveling snow and cleaning driveways is a big part of that too. And so I was always interested in business. And when I, you know, got to the end of my high school career, I thought, oh, I should go study a business degree because they'll help me become a businessman. It was only after a few years, I realized that they were actually trying to turn me into a, a middle manager at some big company not really the sort of entrepreneur business guy that I envisioned for myself, you know, when you drive around your city and see all the different businesses that exist. And so I really lucked out because the, one of the first careers I got out of, uh, out of being in university was with the yellow pages. Now this was back in the nineties when if you typed plumber into Google, it didn't matter where in the world you were, you'd get a plumber in California because they hadn't figured out how to localize the searching at that point. And so Yellow Pages was really important for anyone who had any kind of local business, you know, to find local customers. And so I would go and I would meet with the owners and managers of these businesses and and talk with them about who ideally they'd like to have as their customers. And so so I went and I and I, you know, talked with these people and I learned more and more about business. Eventually, I realized that there wasn't much of a future in, in Yellow Pages. So I started my own business, and it was actually a, um, just a small business, me and a partner. And we operated that. We were mostly helping homeowners. And after about a year and a half, I realized I wasn't really interested in doing that anymore. I missed talking with business owners. And so um, I decided to do something new, which was to open up a finance brokerage. So I was doing, um, 
capital leases and equipment leases uh, for small business owners, and I was helping people get uh, business loans and what are, and do what's called factoring of accounts receivable, which is when we help people turn receivables into cash. So if you're in a business where you give people 30 days to pay, sometimes you need your money faster. A factor will buy that receivable and give you an advance. So I was doing that kind of financial arrangement. When the financial crisis happened in 2008, 2009, and a lot of these finance companies I was working with went under. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Well, one of the things that I noticed when I was doing this finance brokerage is that there were people trying to buy and sell businesses and they weren't having a whole lot of success and they weren't being served very well by people who knew what they were doing. And that opened me up to the world of business brokerage. And so I joined up with a big international franchise brand uh, called Sunbelt. And the reason I chose them was because they gave me uh, the opportunity to learn. And I eventually, after about two and a half years, uh, got my professional designation as a business intermediary and um, started to help people buy and sell businesses. So over a three-year period, I owned a business brokerage um, of my own, and I helped sell 36 companies in that time. Um, it's a terrible business, though, let me tell you, Dave, because business brokerage is based kind of on the model of real estate agents. And so you list a business for sale, then you find a buyer, and you help the buyer get the financing, and you make the deal happen. And it's only at the very end when the deal happens that you earn a commission. And so while I sold a lot of businesses over three years, every year I had periods that would go for months with no deals closing. And so it was a terrible cash flow kind of business. And eventually I got out of it um, and became a banker. And it, it's, you know, I was doing my banking job and my phone just kept ringing and people were asking me to help them with deals. And I realized that I could use some of my business brokerage knowledge as a consultant. Um, and and sort of use the business model of the accountants and the lawyers. You know, you, you you help someone out, you give them a bill. You help someone out, you give them a bill. And so I started to do that. This was um, around 2014, 2015. And that's when I started to write books and I started my YouTube channel. And as I got more international exposure, my clientele grew from being, you know, people here in my local community to being people all around the world. And today, um, you know, about three quarters of my business is with people all across the US. Uh, and the other quarter is with people in Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and some of the other um, former British colony common law type places around the world like Singapore. And basically, I help people analyze deals. Uh, people who want to sell a business, I help them analyze their business and show them what it might likely sell for under what terms and conditions. And I coach people through this process um, and sometimes interact with with people that are working with brokers, but a lot of the times it's just people who are doing deals on their own and they just want some professional person who's been there and done that to help them through this process. Because for most people, it's something that you, you do once, you know, you buy a business once, operate it until you're ready to sell it, or you, you built a business from scratch and you operate it until you're ready to sell it. And very, very few people out there are kind of like doing deals all the time uh, most people, it's a very rare transaction. And so I help people with that. Well, that sounds really, really awesome. Um, I really like that sort of more innovative business model you've created for yourself where you don't have to wait till the end to get the commission and you're actually more coaching people through things. Um, and I'm guessing based on the like hundreds of YouTube videos I saw, you have um, 
you've had a lot to share. And um, I think maybe for my audience, you know, people might be thinking about retiring and thinking about, you know, maybe, you know, I'm going to be retiring a little earlier. I'm going to have more time. I'm going to be healthier. And maybe I don't want to just go on vacation and golf. Maybe I actually want to, you know, do a passion project or, you know, start a business or buy a business. Um, so for people like that, um, what kind of advice would you give to them? And maybe starting with like, um, if they're thinking through buying or starting a business. Yeah, sure. So th- the biggest difference between buying and starting a business is simply this. When you start a business, you have to create the systems, gather the employees and the equipment together and have everyone execute in a way that satisfactorily provides the product or service that customers want. Those people who will be your customer are getting the product or service from somebody else right now. So in addition to organizing the employees, the equipment, and everything else you need to make the business go, you then have to go and convince people to stop buying that thing from someone else and to come and buy it from you. And we all know the the failure statistics about starting a business because oftentimes you then can't get enough customers or you can't get them quickly enough and you end up failing. So when you buy a business, you don't have to convince customers to come from some other place because you're buying a business that already has the customers, that already has employees, all the equipment, everything's in place. And the current owner has the system set up in order to make the business function. And so it may be more of an investment upfront to buy an existing business, but you should cash flow positively starting on the second day, which is what makes it so different from starting a business. And so if someone were going to retire, we're thinking about someone who's later on in life, um, you don't have the time left to play catch up if things don't go well. And so I, I, on many occasions, have encouraged younger people to start a business. Is you know, someone in their 20s or what have you, you don't have a family, you don't have a mortgage. Like that's the time to be taking risks because you don't have a lot to lose. And you, if it doesn't work out, you've got time to make up for it. When somebody's, you know, middle-aged or approaching retirement age, um, they can't be making those kinds of risky moves a lot of the time. So if you buy a business that's already existing, you don't face the same kinds of risks related to the startup. But what I also see, in addition to purely a financial move, is I see people who will want to get out of a, a corporate existence, a, you know, a job they don't necessarily like to go to. But they'll buy a business that provides not just a financial revenue stream, but also a change in lifestyle. So maybe they're moving from the big city to some locale in the country or near the beach where they're going to have a better balanced work life. And they're going to be doing something that they enjoy that's more closely related maybe to a hobby or a passion that they might have. And so I've helped people over the years buy things like fishing uh, chalets and, and stuff like that where they're leaving the corporate job and they're getting into a business that is still going to be work, um, but they're going to be able to earn a living while they're immersed in something that they know that they're going to enjoy a little bit more. And it, I guess you could kind of call it a semi-retirement where they're not going to have to dip into those retirement savings that they've built up. Um, they're going to be able to sustain their lifestyle and build an asset in that business that they at one point down the road will be able to sell on to someone else. And, and then go into fully retirement at some point. Yeah, that's really important. The whole having enough time if you're going to start a business. Um, what about people that they, they, 
they want to retire a little bit and they want to buy a business, um, like what are some expectations they should have? Because I know some people might think, okay, I'll just buy a business or two and I'll just have a check come in. But is there maybe yeah. more they need to think about than just that? It's not that simple, perhaps. Yeah, it, it isn't that simple. So my area of expertise is what I call Main Street businesses. And I don't use the word, the term small business because banks, the government, other business people, they all have a different idea of what qualifies as a small business. But when I say Main Street business, people get a pretty good idea of what kind of business I'm talking about. I will more specifically define it as a business that has a cash flow to the owner of under half a million dollars a year. So we are still talking about some good sized businesses here. Now, most of those businesses are managed by the owner. And so a lot of the times when you go to buy a business like that, the person who is experienced in the day-to-day management of the operation is departing when you buy the business. And so a lot of the times when I'm dealing with buyers and they say, I want to buy a business, I'll get into their own background and their work experience to make sure that there's some sort of analogy or relatability between their experience and the business that they're trying to buy. If you want to buy a business and have somebody else run it for you, my all, my advice always is that you're going to have to still spend time in there because you need to learn the business inside and out. Because if you leave it with someone else to manage and you don't understand what you're supposed to be looking at as an owner, there's never 100% disengagement. You always have to be having some level of involvement. But if you don't know what to look at, then things can get off the rails in a pretty big way before you even realize what's going on. If you rely on waiting for the accountant to prepare the financial statements, for example, financial statements are created several months into the new year. And so you could then become aware of a problem that started 14, 15 months ago, which is too late. I like to draw the analogy between um, like a chain business Like maybe there's a restaurant chain or gas station chain or corner store chain near where you live. Those stores will have a manager, but the big company that owns that store, they don't simply tell the manager to run the business and we'll see you in a year. That store manager reports to someone like a regional manager. And that regional manager is looking at the results probably on a weekly basis of every store. And if they see something that seems off, they're going to call that manager and they're going to say, Hey, I noticed that this is, you know, not quite on target. This is, you know, what, what's going on with this number? What happened with this incident, for example? And so that regional manager is overseeing what the store manager is doing. If you're going to buy a business and be absent from the day to day operations, you need to develop the skills that that regional manager has, which means you're going to have to be looking at certain pieces of information that let you know what's going on in that business on a regular basis. And in order to know what those pieces of information are, you have to know what's going on in the business. One one thing that I I see advertised from time to time is someone will put a business up for sale and they'll say, you know, transmission shop, for example, owned by absent owner, you know, perfect business, you know, for a retiree, right? You buy this business, you get the check. But what's really going on there is that the owner, while he's in Florida, He ran that shop for 30 years. So from Florida, he knows what questions to ask when he talks with the person left in charge. And maybe he's even, you know, accessing digital cameras over the internet so he can see what's going on in the business. 
and he can log into the back end of the point of sale system so he can see you know how many customers were served that day and what the total receipts were and he can log into the bank account so he can actually get quite a good degree of visibility of what's going on in the business and because he ran it for such a long time he knows what he needs to be looking for if i were to take over that business i don't know anything about the transmission business right so i i mean i could look at those numbers and not interpret them in the same way that he is and and that's where the problem can come about if someone were to make that acquisition is they end up with something that they don't fully understand and problems can start to creep in that they don't recognize until it becomes very costly to correct. So you're saying in that example, the business was put up for sale, advertised as an absent owner to kind of make it seem like some turnkey operation where hands are off. But in reality, the owner actually isn't actually absent. He's just made his job so efficient that he can just basically be feel like he's absent, but maybe he's not really absent. Well, you know, I, I, I would say the difference is the word absent versus remote. And during the, the pandemic, we've all learned that a lot of work can be done remotely. You know, all these people took their work home with them, right? Well, the original remote workers, uh, I've, I think, are these people who kind of semi-retired from their businesses in colder climates. They went down to Florida to enjoy the weather, but they actually kept doing the job they were doing up north. They're just doing it from the kitchen table in Florida. And they're calling, you know, they're still writing checks sometimes or processing payroll with online providers. They're, you know, managing the day-to-day of the business that they would have been doing if they were still up north, but they're just doing it all from Florida using the power of the internet. And they'll tell people that this is an absent owner business, but it really it isn't. It's just a remote owner business. Yeah, that's that's interesting um, for sure. So you, you think it's really important that, or it could be very important to be to be thinking about buying a business that you at least have some interest in. I know mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend recently. Uh, who was talking, he ended up founding a very successful business that he talked about his whole story and he went through like a list of things that they were considering. And one of the things they were considering was buying like a Krispy Kreme donut shop. And they ended up going for starting a business around um, health insurance advocacy. And that was what he was, his corporate job was all about. So he ended up going in the direction that he knew about. So I find that really interesting because um, I feel like some people have the idea that they could just go retire and buy like a, car wash that's like automatic and then just call it a day well it, it's it's funny because of this whole car wash thing um there was a, a period of time a few years ago where these fully auto, uh fully self-serve car washes started to appear all over the place and i think the impression that was created is here's a business you can invest in the building and the equipment and you don't have to pay employees and so you know you just rake in the money kind of thing yeah i always thought it was i, I always imagine when i was younger i would say i'll just buy a car wash automatic and every week i'll just go collect the quarters and put them in my bank account and then i'll be done that's all i got to do most of those facilities require somebody who stops in there every day oh. because when you're talking about machinery equipment especially when you get into a northern climate and you've got hot water now and you've got you know fuel being consumed um there's just so many things that can break or go wrong that often there, there needs to be some kind of attendant that visits every day. And one thing I learned that surprised me is that if you're in a, a northern place that has snow and ice, often those car washes, they actually have to put heating under the asphalt 
in front oh, of wow. the building or else you get ice buildup. And so the, the costs, the overhead in this, in the wintertime can be huge. And, but that's the time of year you make money because of course the city's putting salt on the road and whatnot and the co- cars are getting covered in this stuff. Right. And so this is when people are washing their cars very frequently and it isn't quite as profitable as people might think. And in fact, uh, there are several of those self-serve car washes that I watched being opened that have now been converted into other businesses. You know, now they're wow. like used car lots and things like that, or or like uh, like quick lube places and things of that nature. <laughs> That's fascinating. That kind of blows up my retirement plan for myself. <laughs> <laughs> there's, no, there's always there's always some opportunity being per- pitched out there, and. For some reason, not having employees is a big attracting thing for a lot of people out there. And so every few years, you know, there's usually a company that goes around trying to sell vending machines saying, hey, there's big profits in vending machines and you don't have to have any employees, right? But of course, the best spots to put these things are have already been taken. And so it, the challenge then is actually in doing the sales role of going out and trying to secure the good locations to put these things and then they still need to be serviced. The machines still have to be filled up. The money has to be taken out. Vandalism has to be addressed. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's, there's always a lot more that goes into it than meets the eye when you're thinking about it. Um, so on that thread, then, I mean, if someone is considering buying a business, what are some of the things they should like check off the list of like to maybe even think if they're even really should be even thinking about this? And, um, mm-hmm. and then let's start there and then maybe get into some of the like, what are the most important, like maybe metrics or sort of characteristics that make a business more attractive from a, from a becoming a quick income source perspective? Sure. So <clears throat> if you're going to buy a business, you have to have the skills to operate it. So if you've never been in business before, what I usually advise people to do is to try to gain some kind of business operating experience within an employment sphere. So if you can become someone who manages the P&L of a department in a company, for example, and start to see, you know, here are the revenues that we have, here are the expenses that we have, you can get a feel for how a business is run. If, if you don't have that opportunity in your workplace, then as far as I'm concerned, the next best thing would be to get some experience in sales, in especially commission sales role, because in a lot of ways, commission salespeople are sort of running their own little business within somebody else's business. And ultimately, when you're a business owner, the buck stops with you when it comes to revenue and sales. A lot of the times with these, with these smaller businesses, um, the owner has a role to play in, in taking care of the most important customers, um, or at least in doing sort of the marketing and a lot of other kind of stuff. And so having some sales background is important as well. So you want to have an idea of how you run the business. If, if you are deficient in that area, then you might want to look at something that comes with a certain degree of support. So um, I often talk about how if you start a new franchise location, you're still starting a new business, you have to find customers. But there are existing franchises out there that have owners that want to sell. And so when you buy an existing franchise location, for example, you have the advantage of seeing what their store is doing, what what their business is doing, what the revenues and, and profits are. But you're still going to have the support of the franchise organization. So you can buy that business without the unknowns of starting a new one. 
and still get all the help and assistance that would be provided by the franchisor. So, so that can be an option too, for people that want a little bit of help as they go along. Um, the other thing is, is to do a proper cash flow forecast. So businesses are sold on what's called seller's discretionary earnings. The SDE is the total amount of money available to an owner operator that works full time. It's pre-tax. It's with amortization and depreciation added back and with the owner's labor added back. So if you see a business advertised with a SDE or seller's discretionary earnings of $100,000, that doesn't mean you're going to get $100,000 in your pocket. What it means is that there's $100,000 of cash flow that you have to use to cover a few things. Number one, you got to take enough money home to live on out of that because don't forget you're working full time to get that money. The second thing is you any capital costs, so any equipment replacement. Because depreciation has been added back, that's how accountants recognize things wearing out. So any new equipment upgrades or things like that have to come out of the SDE as well. Your debt service has to come out of there. So if you borrowed money to buy the business, it's got to come out of there. And any taxes have to come out of there too, because that's not a part of SDE. So what I will often see people make this mistake is they'll start to confuse that cash flow level SDE with the actual money that's going to end up in their pocket. And they're not the same. Why do we use that number? It's because hey, all real of those- quick, what, Real quick, what, what would SDE be most uh, comparable to if we're looking at like a regular income statement from like a public company? Is that like operating cash flow, but not like free cash flow kind of thing? It would, if you were looking at a public company, you would take the net income, and then you would add back your non-cash expenses like amortization and depreciation. Then you would add back your interest. And the reason we add back interest is because the finance costs of the existing owner may be different than the finance costs of a new owner. And then if then the, the role of the manager, we add that back too, because we're, we're assuming that the buyer is going to do the manager's role. And so whatever oh, the so manager- you're, you're adding be, back the, the, like the, compensation of the manager. Yeah. Okay. And then any, any, what we call, you know, perks. So a lot of the time in small business, people will realize, Hey, my teenage daughter wants a cell phone. It's cheaper for me to give her a company phone than it is for me to make a profit, pay income tax on that, then go down and get her a cell phone. And so a lot of small businesses will have some of these other add backs where it's actually profit hidden within the expenses of the business. And so those get added back too, because we're trying to show the buyer, this is the total benefit that you will enjoy of being the owner of this business. However, you know, a good broker or a good advisor is going to make sure that someone understands here are the things that have to come out of that SDE number. And so one of the big mistakes that people will make is they will um, underestimate what those things are and they'll overcommit the amount of, that they can afford, for example, in loan payments. And so if you overcommit how much of that SDE you're going to use for debt service at the bank, it means that you can end up in a short position as far as cash. And then if you further have like a down year, businesses are asymmetrical systems. So a 10% decline in revenue could be a 30% decline in profit, for example, depending on you know how much of your expenses are fixed versus variable. And so if you overcommit your cash flow to debt service, and then you have a slight decline in sales, which ends up being a big decline in profits, you can end up in a position where you don't have enough money to 
write yourself a paycheck. And that's the danger. And that's where people often will make mistakes. And so in order to avoid that, what we have to do is a proper cash flow forecast where we look at what we're presented as far as an SDE. And then we calculate all of the other things that we're going to have to pay out to make sure that the cash flow is there to cover those things and that we have enough of a cushion to protect ourselves <clears throat> from a down year. And a down year, you know, if a major public company had a 10% decline in revenue, people would go, oh my God, their revenues are falling. But when it comes to these main street businesses, you can have an oscillation of 10% in revenue going up and down year over year. I call that flat because they're just they're just more variable in the lower side of things. Um, you can have a restaurant, for example, that's heavily dependent upon summertime weather and the city could come and dig up the street to replace a pipe. You know, their business could be wrecked for two weeks while that work is going on. And that, you know, could cause a noticeable change in their financial statements for that year. And very highly unpredictable when yeah. you have one business with so many idiosyncratic risk factors that could pop out of anywhere. Yeah, that's that's definitely yeah. interesting. You know, it's even bigger than that. Like, <clears throat> so some of the even riskier categories of business, I mentioned restaurants, but like a nightclub, for example, um, a lot of nightclubs will make a huge chunk of their revenue on Saturday night, you know, or Friday night, right? And so I've met nightclub owners that have had major drops from one year to the next. And I'll say to them, you know, what happened that year? And they'll say, well, there were three snowstorms on Saturdays that year. And so that was like three out of 50 main revenue days that slipped. And that was enough to show up and have an effect on their year. Yeah, that's interesting. So for somebody who's looking to buy a business to maybe diversify their retirement income, uh, the type of business you buy might be very important if it's going to be income that you actually are going to be relying on or unless you factor in flexibility of down years and whatnot. And that got me thinking, what kind of types of business do you see people buy where it's more, maybe less fixed costs, more light overhead, more feasible for someone who's looking to do it for for the enjoyment of it, but also for for the cash flow? So as a general rule of thumb, if you want to get away from fixed overheads, then it leads you more into like service industry type stuff. So more the higher labor costs and things like this, but they're variable. So if you lose customers, you can, you know, let employees go kind of thing. And the converse is if you get more customers, you can hire on more people. <clears throat> As we're seeing with the current labor market, sometimes that's a little more difficult, right? When there, there just may not be workers available. But for someone who wants to... That type of business, because you have more of your you know, direct costs or variable, there's less of a moat around that kind of business. So if you think about like maid service, house cleaning, lawn mowing, these kinds of businesses, right? I mean, there's a reason why these are businesses that are started a lot of the time by students because they're fairly easy to get into. And the biggest component is the labor, right? And so what that also means is that it's easier for new competitors to enter the market which means it's harder to put your prices up to get a good margin on what you're selling. And so the value of those businesses tends to be lower. And so 
there may be less in the way of, of risk with those businesses. You're going to pay a lower price to get in, but they're going to be very competitive. It's going to be hard to make good margins. And when you go to exit, you're going to be exiting at a similar lower multiple. Um, businesses that have a significant barrier to entry. So if you compare a lawn mowing service with, say, a septic pumping service, right? That the septic truck service, you've got this big capital investment in the big piece of equipment. And you have, you know, environmental permits and all that other kind of thing. So it makes it much more difficult for a bunch of new people to come into the market. And because customers aren't hiring you all the time, you might visit someone every second year. They're less price sensitive. They may not even remember what they paid last time. And so it's easier for that business to protect its margins. It's easier for that business to not have to worry about new competitors coming in all the time. And so that kind of business will sell for a higher multiple of cash flow. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm thinking um, financing businesses. Is there a lot of flexibility around how people are able to finance uh, finance buying a small business um, or even potentially do it with very little money crossing the table? Yeah. So if you if you go searching for buy a business with no money or something like that, you will find all kinds of people that are ready to sell you courses with a secret on how to get a business with nothing down. And so here's, here's the problem with that whole line of thinking. Um, if you could reliably acquire a profitable money-making business with nothing of your own, um, then why would you sell that secret? <laughs> yeah. Why wouldn't you just go and buy all the businesses? Right. That's and so, point. um, when, when somebody is selling a business, they have a few choices to make. They could close the business and liquidate. They could sell off their inventory, sell their equipment, take their operating capital out of the out of the business, and they could have that amount. When they choose to sell a business, it's usually because they believe the business's value as a going concern is greater than the liquidation value. So a lot of the times when we talk about buying a business, there's typically three components to the financing formula. The buyer puts some money in of their own. Maybe they borrow some money from a bank, and the seller will typically hold a note for some amount of that business purchase. So if I were to say to a seller, let me take over your business. I see you've got some equipment here. I'm going to borrow from the bank and I want you to finance the balance. Well, that seller knows that I've got nothing invested. So am I really committed to the long-term success of the business? Because right now they're trying to decide if I'm a wise credit investment for them to lend me the money to buy their business, right? And if I don't have anything invested, they might think that maybe I'm not as committed as I should be. Never, you know, never mind the bank. If the bank sees I've got nothing committed, their number one concern is, hey, wait a minute, is this guy committed to to making this work or not? And so a lot of the times in order to get a banker involved, the buyer has to have something of their own put in. Usually banks have rules around what's called the debt to equity ratio, how much uh, invested is your own money versus how much is borrowed. And uh, so they want to see somebody who has been able to accumulate some resources, right? Um, do you know what they call it when you run a profitable household, Dave? No. <laughs> it's called savings. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. If, if I've got a household income and I keep my expenses below that, then there's extra money that I can save, right? So someone who can run a household profitably is going to end up with savings, other investments, right? Because they're accumulating wealth. They're keeping their expenses under control. And so when that person goes to the bank and says, I want to buy a business, 
and and they say, I've got money to put down because I've been a wise steward of my own income and, and expenses. It's easier for the banker to agree that this person is going to be capable at running the business. The banker ultimately wants to get paid. The seller as well, if they're going to finance part of the deal, they ultimately want to get paid. And so their interest is in seeing that this is a responsible person that they're bringing into the picture. If you show up at the bank or the seller and you say, look, you know, life's really hard and I haven't saved anything and I don't have any money to put in, it's going to be much harder for them to agree that you are a responsible steward of your money and that you'll be able to manage the business properly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You definitely want to be serious about what you're doing, right? It's, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk about what are some of the like maybe biggest red flags when buying a business? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them. Um, some of the some of the biggest concerns that come up is when you have things like big changes in um, in the performance. So if if revenue has been dropping every year for the last few years, uh, customer concentration is another one. So if a big chunk of the of the revenue is coming from one particular customer or just a small handful of customers, there are strategies that you can employ to try to de-risk that kind of deal. Um, but it's it's dangerous, especially if that one customer were to leave, one of the exercises we'll do is we'll say, what would this business look like if the biggest customer left? And we'll we'll look at that you know, income statement. And if it's still a money-making thing, then we're like, okay, well, how do we mitigate the risk here? How do we make it safer for us to go in? But if you take away that biggest customer and the thing is just you know a terrible money loser at that point, then the question is, okay, is there any way to de-risk this scenario? Um, and a lot of the times those sorts of businesses, um, you end up having to basically demonstrate to the seller that there's just so many different ways it can go wrong that the only way it makes sense for you to buy it is with a large degree of them financing the acquisition of the business with, um, what we call an offset clause. So if certain conditions were to happen, part of that debt is forgiven or written off. And so, uh, an example of this would be, you know, I'll, I'll buy your business for a million bucks um, and I'll pay you that million. Uh, you know, I'll put a hundred grand in, I'll owe you 900. I'll pay you over the course of the next five or six years. But if the big customer goes away, then I get to write off half that debt. And that would be an example of how you might, you know, mentally envision this sort of thing. And of course, that seller is going to say, you know, I don't like that. I, you know, there's no reason why that customer should go away. This is when, this is when you really get to find out if that seller believes in you as a buyer or not. Because in order for a seller to accept that kind of deal, they have to have confidence in you as an operator. And, and this is one of the things that, that I like to do is I like to have a seller in a position where they have to make a judgment call on the buyer because nobody knows the business better than that seller. And if they don't think that you're qualified and they don't think you're going to be successful, maybe you won't be. I mean, they know the business better than anyone. And so you need to have a seller who sees you as a qualified, competent person to be able to take over that business. And you also want to have a reason for them to want to be helpful. And being owed money is certainly a reason. So in all the deals that I've ever done as a broker, except one, there was a seller financing component. And in all of those deals, except one, which had a problem, 
But in all those deals, except one, the buyer and seller ended up becoming friends after a while because that, that seller stuck around for a training period. But then beyond the training period, they kept talking to each other because those sellers wanted to get paid. They were owed money that was being paid over time and they wanted to get that money. And they knew that in order for them to get the money, the buyer had to be successful. And so they developed a friendship, a good relationship. And those buyers and sellers kept talking to each other. The buyer could pick up the phone and say, look, I'm faced with a, with a unique situation I've never seen before. You know, what do you think I should do? That seller might say, look, that happened to me 10 years ago, and this is what I did. And this is what the outcome was. Maybe this is a way for you to solve that problem. And so you get that coaching mentor, mentor mentee kind of relationship that develops because both parties have a common goal, which is the success of the business. If you compare that to a cash transaction where a buyer just writes a check for the business, once that check is cashed, the seller has zero concern or interest in what goes on in that business. And the buyer is really left on their own to figure it out. And that's not a position that you want to be in, especially with something like a business. You know, when you buy a house, you're buying a building. You can get the building inspected. When you're buying a car, you're buying a machine. You can get a mechanic to inspect it. But what is a business? You know, a business is actually a system. It's where people and capital interact in a place in such a way to deliver a product or service to a customer that's going to make the customer happy. And so when you buy a business, you're actually buying a system. It's ethereal. It's not a tangible thing at all. And if you as a buyer can't manage that system or mess up in some way, you can very quickly go from a positive cash flow situation to a money losing situation. And this fragility is why banks have a lot of strict rules around lending for businesses. It's also why businesses don't sell for a very high multiple of cash flow because they're risky. You know, if you take over a famous pizzeria uh, that people in the neighborhood love and change the sauce recipe, you know, two weeks later, all of the value of that business could go away because you changed it to something that people aren't used to. Yeah. I really like the idea of the seller helping finance for that reason of aligning interests. I think that sounds really, really huge to me. Um, because yeah, if you just hand it over and then the new operator is going for, especially if it's like more high touch, um, if you're not servicing like clients or customers in the same fashion or something's a little off, yes, things could fall off real quick. So, um, that was, yeah. So I wanted to ask about that, like in businesses where, um, the, it's very much customer service oriented. I mean, have you seen times where it gets dicey, um, where the new operator just isn't quite, there's something about the previous owner that the customers are loyal to, and then it falls apart with the new, new owner. Um, not as often as you might expect. And businesses where, you know, one of the questions that we might ask is where does the goodwill reside? Does it reside with the business or the owner? Mm -hmm. And so if you think of a barbershop, for example, if the owner of the barbershop is there every day cutting hair and knows half the customer's names on, you know, on a first name basis, man, those people like him. Right. But if you compare that with one of these barbershops that you see, like in the strip mall next to Walmart, where there's staff is always changing. Right. And people go there because you don't need an appointment and it only costs $15 and you can get in and out in, you know, 20 minutes. 
people there don't have a relationship with the barbers or the owner. They have, they, they're just going there because of all the other attributes. It's convenient. The hours are good. The price is right. You know, so in that case, the goodwill definitely belongs to the business. You know, if you bought that business, those people would likely still keep coming as long as you kept those things the same, you know, the hours and the cost and price and everything. So in a case where the goodwill resides with the owner, usually what ends up happening is the transition has to be related to transferring the goodwill. So you might see this sometimes in professional practices. So I, someone wants I to say I can relate to this a lot because, you know, in our business, unless you're, you're, you're customer service is incredibly scalable and incredibly robotic, then a lot of it is based around the relationship. Yeah. Well, I've seen different people like, like an accounting firm where, you know, the buyer comes in and the transition happens over the course of time. And the seller is there for maybe even a couple of years while the customers get to know the, the new guy, they have confidence in the old guy. And the two of them are there together. And as the relationship starts to move over, then the person that's leaving can start to spend less and less time there, sort of move into a semi-retirement kind of thing. Um, I've seen deals done before, though, where the seller of a business like that, in the deal, then he might have to show up for a certain number of days a year. Like if they sponsor a golf tournament, they might want this seller to come back to be at the you know mm. promotional stand at the golf right, tournament. right because of all these people that would recognize him, right? And so this is why if you read books about selling businesses, a lot of them will talk about developing your systems and 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 making it so that it isn't so owner dependent because ultimately that's going to create more obligations on a seller if the business is going to be sold. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I can actually relate to that um, for sure. Um, before we wrap up, I'm thinking if someone is thinking about doing this, maybe they want to maybe just dip their toes in or just go all in and semi-retired follow a passion project. Um, how might they even start to think about this? Who would they call? You know, who, how would they start looking? So there's, there's a couple of different ways to find out what businesses are for sale. So there's all kinds of online marketplaces. Uh, biz buy sell businesses for sale.com and there, there are many others and there are some strong regional brands in certain parts of the country um, and so you can take a look at, at businesses that are for sale it's not representative of the entire market um, our best guess is about 80 percent of businesses change hands without going through any kind of intermediary so a buyer and seller meet each other somehow whether it's um, through someone actively going out trying to find a business that might be suitable or just two people that happen to be at the Rotary Club together or something. And so the buyer and seller will meet each other. They'll do a deal on their own. But if you're interested in just learning more, check out those online marketplaces where businesses are advertised um, and and check out something like my YouTube channel. Like I literally have hundreds of videos. Yes, hundreds. That, that answer questions that people have sent in over the years uh, on the various aspects of doing these deals and, and people wanting to learn. And I've had many people who've reached out to me who've said they've been watching my videos for a long time. And it's it's helped them to decide what they want to do, what kind of business they want to have. But the other wins, you know, if you want to categorize things into wins or losses, the other wins are the people who say, you know what, I really had this dream of owning a business. And now that I've 
you know, read some of your books and, and watched, you know, many, many hours of your videos, I realized, wow, this would be complicated and hard. And I don't know that if I want to do that. And so realizing that it's not for you, I think is just as big a win as finding and doing a good deal. Because if you end up buying a business and then you decide that it's not really for you, what you've done is you've acquired an illiquid asset. And so, you know, the difference between a privately controlled business and shares of a publicly traded company is that you can sell those shares, you know, you sell shares of Coca-Cola whenever the stock market's open. Uh, But if you own a private business and you decide you don't like it, you could then take you years in order to sell it. And if it's a quick sale, if you just bought it and then you change your mind, then there's a further stigmatization. People start to question, well, wait, well, you just bought it. Now you want to sell it? Is there, there must be something wrong with it. Yeah. Where, where I can tell you the biggest reasons why businesses go up for sale are all personal motivations. It's, it's not, businesses rarely get sold because there's something wrong with the business. That's why they close. Uh, businesses go up for sale because the owner suddenly has a personal motivation preventing them from carrying on as the owner of the business. That's that's very interesting. So you're saying check the online directories, but really maybe first just educate yourself on what it will re- what what it will really entail, um, and if you really want to do it, because I guess that would be the crucial first step before you maybe like impulsively, like I know I can be impulsive, impulsively just go buy a business. Next thing you know, like you said, uh, you're like, wow, this is a lot more work than I really wanted. Um, all right. So why don't you just quickly, how can people find your YouTube channel uh, and how can they follow you? Sure. The, look, the easiest thing to do is go to davidcbarnett.com because from there, I've got blog posts that go up every week with some of the videos embedded, but there are links to the playlists on the YouTube channel and links to you know the books that I've written and stuff like that. So I would head to davidcbarnett.com. There's an email list you can sign up for as well if you'd like to get stuff from me on a regular basis. Um, and that's really sort of the central place where everything else branches out from. And All right. Yeah. So just look for David Barnett or davidcbarnett.com. You'll find me. All right. Awesome. Um, so it looks like we're going to be out of time, but uh, I really appreciate that. I think that was great. I think um, a lot of the people in the audience will find some value from that. Awesome. Well, thanks for inviting me over, Dave. I had a lot of fun talking with you today. Yeah, that was awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you.